tonight's a three-hour special program to celebrate television's 50 years. Why you Welcome to episode 50B of Round the Archives. And if you've not heard episode 50A, go and listen to it. That's a good idea. Mm. Yes, episode 50 is so long, it's a two parter. Yes. So, yeah, we're, we've covered a few things already. Mm-hmm. So, now we'll carry on with uh, Martin Holmes looking at episode 6 of Quatermass in the Pit. <laughs> Quatermass and the Pit, Episode 6, Hob. The sixth and final episode of Nigel Neal's classic BBC serial Quatermass and the Pit, entitled, rather ominously, for those paying proper attention, Hob, was first broadcast on the 26th of January 1959 and attracted a whopping 11 million viewers. This was the highest figure for the serial and was up a further 400,000 on the previous week's effort. This was indeed event television and, on cold winter Monday evenings, was drawing viewers in like they were possessed. It's hard to imagine now in our strange modern idea of what the 1950s were like, but word of mouth about some daft television horror serial must have been really getting around, and it was still nearly two years before Coronation Street would turn up become a national addiction, and eventually wipe the floor with anything put up against it, even quality science fiction. Not that Nigel would want us to think of it as science fiction, of course. Anyway, this is the big one. This is the proverbial it. This is where all of that hard work throughout much of the decade, the previous five instalments, and all that careful plotting we've been considering in these articles has been leading us to. So it better not disappoint. And of course, it doesn't. This episode delivers in spades and helps Quatermass and the Pit reach its now legendary status in the history of television, and quite frankly, still pack a wallop to the viewer, even now more than 60 years later. If anyone ever tries to tell you that old or black and white television was just primitive, slow, dreary nonsense, just remember that you've got this particular ace up your sleeve to play, because it is still, quite frankly, a brilliant piece of clever, innovative and pacey television that really, really needs to be seen and savoured. It's not perfect, of course, little television is, but it gets pretty darn close in my humble opinion. 
Of course, maybe your idea of televisual perfection is something completely different, and that's fine. But I imagine in that case that you're unlikely to have been joining us here today anyway. Now, it gets tricky when you're talking about the final episode of a thing, even if that thing has given you 60-odd years of opportunities to find out what happens, because there are inevitably some people who are going to come to this piece without knowing what happens and are going to scream SPOILER ALERT at me for ruining the experience for them. Well, if you've never seen the serial, what on earth are you doing here? Go away and watch it immediately, then come back and we'll pick up where we left off. We are here to appreciate Quatermass and the Pit and not ruin it. Have they gone? Are they back? Okay, here we go. The titles roll for one last time. The words carved out of a slab of ancient stone are revealed until the dramatic zoom on that one word title is attempted and, well, botched a bit. The camera doing the caption zoom wobbles about all over the place in a manner that might have hair being pulled out in that live television gallery, but also seems mildly appropriate given the way that television equipment in the pit has been thrashing about under the influence of those ancient Martians. Happily, for the sake of authenticity, the people attempting the excellent Blu-ray restoration didn't try and improve or fix this, but carefully recreated every frame of this undramatic wobble, and so history remains unwritten, and ultimately that one word, hob, sits front and centre in our screens until the plummy tones of yet another announcer gives us the story so far although for once it's mostly about the events of last week. And this announcer seems to remain unimpressed by the Minister's actions, too, helping to point us in the right direction emotionally, just in case we're still thinking that the viewers might also believe that the Minister was right in not going along with his crackpot theory about Martians in the underground or whatever, and fails to be anything other than underwhelmed by the technological miracle of Roni's brain-reading device. He also mentions that term, race purge because, well, it might be worth having that nugget of information tucked away to help explain the events of the next 35 minutes. Anyway, we're back, live in the pit, as the burnt body of that poor unfortunate electrician is carried away, having been pronounced dead, burnt up, and unlikely to need artificial respiration. Well, yes. The policeman suggests that they get him into an ambulance anyway, and there's a brief exchange about blame or otherwise, when Quatermass rather tactlessly suggests that it might not have been an accident. We are, nowadays, living in an era of blame culture, and it's sometimes difficult to appreciate that it did exist back then, and has existed for a very long time. Five million years. Well, maybe not that long, but possibly that's another facet of the Martian inheritance that's possibly never occurred to Neil. We must remember, however, that 1950s Britain still hadn't evolved enough to realise yet that the barbaric practice of capital punishment was uncivilised, and so the possibility of dire consequences for a deliberate act that results in the death of another human being were a real fear. Just a small aside, probably not intended at all, but it explains the strength of that reaction. Meanwhile, Barbara Judd, as played by Christine Finn, has her last moment to shine as, once again possessed by the strange powers trapped in the ancient wreck, she is blindly drawn to look through the portal into the vessel and see that strange organic pulsing and glowing that ended episode 5, accompanied once again by that eerie music that we are now beginning to associate with ominous, impending danger. Her scream ramps up the tension further, but by the time Quatermass risks looking inside the spaceship himself, it's all gone quiet again, and the glow has gone. His concern for her safety finds her being handed into the care of the besotted Captain Potter, who, it turns out, might not turn out to be quite the safe pair of hands that he might have hoped. 
her I don't want to go may indeed speak volumes, and those five words might just, perhaps, have stuck in the mind of one young Welsh writer when he saw this serial. However, this moment is interrupted by the blazing rage of that blundering blimp Breen, and Quatermass and him have their final head-to-head -head argument as Breen refuses to clear the site for safety reasons. Quatermass does his best, of course, to get them all out of there, although his plea of My name's Quatermass, if that means anything to you, might not sit too well with the members of the press, given the fallout after his two previous appearances in the headlines this decade. James, full of love, tries his best to jivvy the press pack into his way of thinking, but Breen entices them back with promises of the official statement continuing as planned, and as ever, the press pack remain torn as to where the real story might actually be. We all have our editors to please. Quatermass and Breen have their face-off in full view of the cameras, as Breen suggests that Quatermass is tired and needs a long rest, and tellingly, that's not just his view, apparently. As it's around 20 years before we'll see him on our television screens again, maybe he makes a good point. However, as the paraphernalia of television and all of that lining up of shots business is played out, we move around the pit to find the future Professor Kettlewell, Edward Burnham, with that expressive face he always had, noticing that the pulsing glow has returned inside the ship and those terrifying sounds start again. We cut to a street scene as several feet obviously pass a newspaper vendor's poster reading Are We Martians? and the camera creeps back as the cries of Gazette are heard to announce that the whole thing is going to be on the telly. And so we cut to a close-up of a television screen showing the scenes in the pit, as so many television sets in so many homes were currently doing, all overlaid with the audio of just the sort of general introductory blurb from an announcer that it's surprisingly difficult to fake. Neil doing metatextual long before we even knew it was a thing. The camera pulls back to reveal a smoky old pub full of the kind of folk who used to fill those kinds of pub in those days. A great social leveller is the pub, as we see an ordinary geezer type chatting to a posh know-it-all bloke in an evening suit, trying to have his way with Kitty, who we initially take for the kind of barroom lush of the fur coat and no knickers variety. The idea of unaccompanied women in bars still being something that would have been frowned upon in many of the households sitting watching these scenes playing out, by the way, so the nation may have let out a collective tut. All human life is here, sort of. Anyway, as the posh know-it-all bloke starts boring everybody in the bar with his war stories, happily the programme proper begins, and the customer's eyes, as well as the camera, is drawn back to that flickering screen upon which the presenter attempts to carry on as usual as scenes of panic and chaos start to unfold in the background, and then there's that unearthly sound again, and quite suddenly the screen fades to black, and an apology caption, something the viewers in those days would be very familiar with, appears. There is a brief moment of jaunty music in the pub as they respond to this in, presumably, the very usual manner, and whilst Posh Know-It-All tries to make up some nonsense about vision on sound to explain it all, it is Kitty who fearfully and astutely points out that those people were running. Back at the pit, there is a scene of utter bedlam as all of the physical effects, the rattling planks, the whipping cables, the flying earth and rocks, are brought into play as the various supporting artists run around in terror, some tripping and falling over the suddenly animate objects. John Scott Martin even gets to wrestle with a strangely angry-seeming television camera, which is nice. The normally staid private secretary from the scenes at the War Office 
one Richard Dare, is visibly terrified, but can get no help from Breen, who is quite simply far too broken now. And as everyone starts to flee, making for those steps that will get them out of the pit, Quatermass seconds Fuller Love into helping him to help one of the electricians to his feet and out of there. But Quatermass clutches at his head as he too is taken over by the powers in the pit, and whilst Fuller Love seems immune and is busily snapping pictures with that little spy camera of his, Quatermass twists and turns in a strange throwback to the strange movements he made when he first heard those noises several episodes back, the strange twisted movements of Sladden, and, most tellingly, those Martian insects we saw during the Wild Hunt. Our hero is lost to the madness. Our hero has the deadly Martian inheritance within him. Who can save the world for us now? Breen sits down, mesmerised and possessed by that strange propaganda weapon that so irked him completely still now, but strangely empowered by the forces consuming him, as he causes more of the wires and cables to thrash and hurl rocks towards any threat, including Quatermass, as the chaos continues and the fleeing mob fill the screen. Barbara is thrashing and screaming, and it is all Potter can do to keep hold of her, as the escaping crowds storm along the street past the police barriers, and whilst Potter wrestles to keep Barbara from getting away from him, even Quatermass can be seen being carried along by this mindless, angry mob. The camera then holds on Quatermass, looking confused, befuddled and utterly lost, and moves in to a close-up of the dead man lying on the ground next to him, another victim of this collective madness as we fade to black. Back in the pub, there are attempts being made to fix the now-defunct television set, ironically because they are worried they might miss the organised fisticuffs of a boxing match, which is a nice touch. The posh know-it-all and Kitty are thinking about moving on to somewhere known as Millie's, when Kitty is overwhelmed by that strange headache as the Martian influence spreads. However, a ruined-looking man enters, demanding a drink, and another, quick. This is Sidney Bromley, by the way, a distinctive-looking actor who is always reliable, and who is another carry-on from the Quatermass 2 cast. He has tales to tell, and is able to deliver that lovely budget-culling line about there being hundreds out there, before those unearthly sounds start to be heard within the pub, and whilst Kitty shares a heartfelt Don't say it's vision on sound for gold's sake! A rare light moment amidst all the madness, as the lights go out and the pub is suddenly a whirlwind of physical effects, and the customers finally decide to flee, and soon the pub is suddenly empty apart from the body of the ordinary geezer that fails to escape the crush. Back in the street, Quatermass is recognised, stopped and grabbed from amongst the mob by Roni, who is desperate to try and save him, and drags him through an open doorway into the ruins of that pub. He flings Quatermass into a chair, and because he's Roni, he does at least manage to find some whiskey amongst the smashed and bottle broken bottles, and whilst it's no way to serve decent whiskey, manages to get some down the throat of a very confused professor. Yes, booze is always the answer, apparently, people. Remember that. This scene is phenomenal, by the way, and whilst André Morel is fantastic playing the confused figure of Quatermass, it is Cess Linda playing Roni, who finally earns his pay after a couple of episodes of being rather sidelined by the plot. And amongst all this gasping and general air of confusion, we learn a lot about the nature of what's going on. Roni apparently can't see the vision held within the pit. He's one of the some that don't, and this makes him different enough that he is a target for those with the Martian influence inside them. Racial purity... Dislike for the unlike, ah, you know. Tellingly, as we learn a little about mass into energy, and that this is what is happening to the machine in the pit, we also learn, in another great line, how you simply don't see this world anymore.
but Quatermass is struggling to retain control over his mind as they discuss the few people who remain at the excavation, including Breen. He battles to use a telephone, but the noise comes again and the telephone is destroyed and, ominously, Quatermass tells Roney and us that it's changing and getting stronger. We cut briefly to the newsroom of the Gazette, where news editor Tony Quinn is mercifully alone, hanging onto a telephone receiver and thanklessly covering another scene change. He is worried about, oh, pretty much everything, but mostly his missing ace reporter, James Fullerlove. And so he should be. Unfortunately, it's another of those tell-not-show moments where he is able to describe the madness he has witnessed from the window of his office, but as he turns again to that window, he sees something horrible. But we don't see what just yet. Instead, we return to the pit where, free of the influence, James Fullerlove is busily snapping his photographs, as we see Breen and some other watchers gazing almost lifelessly at the ship as, in what is a model shot sadly lacking in scale, the glowing spaceship melts, and the smoke rises past that now all-too-familiar row of houses in Hobbs slash Hobbs Lane. Inside that house, once considered so haunted, we find Captain Potter, another of those apparently immune to the Martian influence, busily knocking a hole in the wall that is right above the excavation. Across from him, the still, insect-like body of Barbara Judd is watching him, and starts attacking him simply with the power of her mind. Once again, the rafters shift and rattle furiously, the physical effects in this are tremendous, and must have given the behind-the-scenes staff tremendous fun as they did the wrangling live, and more mud and boulders are flung at the strangely smitten captain. Anyway, with a brief demonstration of what many thought was perfectly acceptable domestic behaviour back then, Barbara is knocked unconscious by the no longer gallant Captain Potter, but he does at least seem to regret what he feels he must do to stop the attack. Within the pit itself, the lights are pulsing brightly as Fullerlove continues trying to chase his final story. He is spotted by Breen and his cronies, and the possessed people turn and stare at him with much the same fury in their eyes that Barbara had. Fullerlove is pelted by rocks and stones and eventually falls, ending up in a hole killed by a stoning, and Brian Worth ends a story arc of the only other recurring Quatermass character, other than Professor Quatermass himself, first played by Paul Whitson Jones in the very first serial seven years earlier. Back at the pub, the camera pans across from a peep show poster as a stiffly moving Quatermass advances on Roney, and it looks like there will have to be a fight to the death between the old friends. Happily, it seems that intellect manages to prevail over physical strength, and thanks to a fishing trip the two men once took, an unfortunate one for a £29 pike, apparently, Quatermass is able to use his brain and his memory to regain control of himself again. This is shocking stuff, really. Our hero is trying to kill his best friend. He wanted to kill him, and he could do it without trying and without moving, simply because Roney was different. It's not what we usually see in television drama, especially in the 1950s, but it shows how high the stakes are and how the Martian influence can affect absolutely anybody. And, as we are about to find out, the stakes are particularly high as they're killing anything different, including the animals. Yes, the dog actually dies in this one, people. No, thankfully we don't see it. And it's not only the animals, because, as Quatermass reminds us, this is the wild hunt, the savage compulsion to preserve their colony, buried within the spaceship in the pit, happening again right now, five million years too late, in contemporary London. 
Morel is terrific in this, as he battles the agony of trying to retain control of his own mind, and it is a thoroughly disturbing and exhilarating tour de force of acting from this veteran and distinguished actor. And yet, simply by hanging on to that rather unlikely notion of Quatermass on a fishing trip, they finally escape the ruin of that old pub as the picture fades. To that familiar trope, of using a newsroom to carry the bigger story, take us away from this small human moment and to give us an idea of the huge scale of what's apparently going on. It may be a familiar trope now, of course, but probably felt quite innovative back in 1959 and may very well have been. Clichés, after all, only become clichés through overuse, but somebody had to do them first for them to begin the journey to becoming clichés. Anyway, in the studios of the NYBC TV newscast, the vaguely American-sounding newsreader tells his viewers and us about the sudden, unexpected paralysis of London, England, using terms like FLASH, which perhaps demonstrate how much InVision news reading has changed, and we ought to remind ourselves that this was something that had only begun on the BBC as recently as 1955. Via the strange live link to the pilots of a freighter aircraft above London, we cut to the relatively convincing interior of the plane and get a commentary on the spreading blackouts and the collapsing buildings as, in another budget-stretching tell-not-show sequence, we hear about the fires and the smoke whilst we visit that happy land known as Stock Footage to find repurposed film of London Join the Blitz, which seems to be curiously appropriate given all of that nonsense that Breen was spouting last week. Anyway, things do not end well for this brave aircrew. The co-pilot has collapsed and the controls start thrashing about in an all-too-familiar manner and the plane is suddenly flying towards a bright glowing light which falls on the face of the pilot as he screams and we hear the worryingly familiar sound of a plane going down overlaid upon more stock footage of a ruined London. The camera cuts once again to those familiar Hobbs slash Hobbs Lane street signs now lit by a throbbing glow and flames, and above the model street we got our first view of Hob, the horned devil, throbbing into being in the sky, and unsurprisingly perhaps, it resembles very closely one of those Martians found in the pit. Below this beast, in the once haunted house, Potter has succeeded in breaking through that wall, and the throbbing glow is now lighting the ruined interior of the room. Quatermass and Roni arrive and find the senseless body of Barbara lying there, and despite the fact that Roni knows it, Potter feels the need to reassure them both that she's not dead, and Potter is suitably apologetic about doing what he felt he had to do. The lucky-slash-unlucky immune ones are able to be picked out instinctively, and in another tell-not-show moment we discover that Roni could have been killed a dozen times on their way here, but that the presence of Quatermass confused the attackers. The scientists then scramble over to see what is happening through that hole in the wall, and it is left to Roni to pronounce the devil, the horned devil, at our latest view of Hob. And when the solution comes, it comes very easily. From the kind of clear thinking and discussion the Martian influence is designed to suppress. The vessel has gone completely, the mass of the ship having turned into the energy of the figure now floating above them, and Roni reasons that the legends they've been exploring may also provide the answer that somehow works both scientifically and magically. Iron and water were the traditional enemies of the devil, and iron and water might just provide the solution they need. The minutes left before the end of the story are now very few, so it will probably work, of course, even if, like Potter says, it seems far too simple. Even if it is too easy, and really, it isn't. It had better work, though.
and, at the very least, the clues have always been there throughout the entire six episodes. Meanwhile, as Potter bravely heads back out into the street to retrieve some of that builder's steel chain, it's also been in plain sight throughout that we're sitting on a building site, remember? We hear a blood-curdling scream. It is not Potter screaming, though. He returns, visibly shaken, to report that he was only saved by the fact that a blind man stumbled into the angry mob and drew their attention away from him. John Stratton plays it very quietly here, which, as he would become a notoriously demonstrative actor later in his career, seems just a little surprising. A lot of Londoners are going to wake up tomorrow full of remorse. At least we hope they will. Maybe several won't give a toss, given that some people can be very intolerant of the unlike, even those with disabilities. This really is a story for the ages, isn't it? Meanwhile, Roni does some prop wrangling, attaching the chain to an old forgotten fire grate, which looks just like the one that used to be in my ramshackle old house, and Quatermass offers to do the fateful deed. The camera angle shifts to outside that hole in the wall, intermittently lit so brightly by that throbbing glow, and we get what might now be considered a hero shot of Quatermass, heading through it on his heroic quest. And so this elderly hero, we don't see many of those these days, clambers endlessly down onto the now brightly lit roof of Crispin's hut, such is the real-time nature of real-time television. But because he is one of the enchanted, Quatermass falters. Both Roni and Potter see this, and Roni begins his own fateful climb down back into the pit, as Quatermass arrives at the strangely waxy form of Breen, who, fully consumed, is now a lifeless husk, which topples at his touch. That's either a fabulous model, or a rather brilliant makeup job, and deadfall. I'm tending towards the latter, but that is finally the end of Anthony Bushell's contribution as Breen in this story. And Quatermass looks as if he might be about to share this fate. He staggers, falls to his knees, and drops the chain of salvation, and basically our hero actually fails to save the day. So it is left to Roni to seize that fire grate and, in a wide shot, fling it skyward, and there is a blinding flash as the screen bleaches out to a bright white before fading, inevitably, to black. We fade up on the staggering, bewildered figure of Professor Quatermass, shouting Roni's name, and then, having spotted the huge circle of white ash that subtly explains his fate, almost whimpering it as normality starts to return and people begin to return to the now perfectly harmless building site, and the music on the soundtrack begins to surge in more hopeful tones. And we cut to a close-up of Quatermass, presumably pre-filmed, as he's his old, neat and tidy self again, speaking at what appears to be the public inquiry about the entire incident, adding a coda that apparently some people wanted cut from the broadcast, which warns us that we now have the hope and the knowledge to deal with the situation should another Martian landing site ever be found. As the rousing music, the final contribution to the serial by Trevor Duncan, swells, this speech during which the camera remains focused on the star as he walks forward serves as a reminder and a warning that if we cannot control the Martian inheritance within us, this will be their second dead planet. And with that, Quatermass leaves the frame, and we see several of the main cast, including Sladden and Gilpin, who return for just this one wordless scene, which makes me think it might have been filmed whilst they were making episode 5, and it is over. 
the character of Professor Bernard Quatermass would never be seen again on BBC television screens, and apart from a repeat of this serial in two parts the following Christmas and the Hammer movie adaptation in the late 1960s, his return to television would be in the form of Sir John Mills in the strike-affected Euston film serial on ITV in the late 1970s, which is a very different and rather troubled beast and broadcast a year after the death of Andre Morel. Nigel Neal would survive until 2006 and is quite rightly considered by many of us, if not those in the industry, to be one of the finest and most prescient television writers of that pioneering generation. But, arguably, possibly his career never quite reached the heights of this work, one which I consider to be his masterpiece. Because, more than 60 years on, I really do think that it is simply just brilliant, and I hope, over the course of these six articles, that some of that enthusiasm has come across, and despite this rather forensic retelling, perhaps spoiling the plot for you, I also genuinely hope you'll give it a go sometime. It is well worth it, and remains the only television serial I would have considered worthwhile enough to cover in an extensive set of articles like this. So if that doesn't tell you something about how good it is, I'm not sure what will. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Many thanks to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. Did you arrange it so that episode six would be on episode 50? Um, yes and no, really. Not when we started, because it was a long time ago that we mm-hmm. we did episode one of Quite a Mass in the Pit. Mm-hmm. But as we got nearer to episode 50, it sort of fell into place. Like all these things, it was sort of not exactly planned, but right. but it sort of worked in okay. the end. I'm nodding. Why am I nodding on audio? I don't know. It's bad as that but, man yeah, said. I'd just like to thank uh, Martin for... Yes, for what has been an epic series of yes, reviews, looking mm-hmm. at Greater Mass and the Pit. Mm-hmm. But now, uh, something a little different now. Yes. Um, we can't have Warren with us. No. Sadly. No. But he's done us a little piece on... Nairn Across Britain. Critical eye, a dreaming gaze mixed with an acidic, eclectic viewpoint topped off with blind rage, intermingled with soaring passion for intrinsic beauty. That's not something you'd expect from an architectural critic, especially not one on the BBC. Ian then was a completely different type of architectural critic, 
and one who was on our screens on and off for about 20 years during the 1960s and 70s, feeding our brains with his passion for what was right and fighting against half-arsed, lazy town planners who frittered away our beautiful spaces to build mundane edifices of bland inconsequence. Never heard of him? I'm not surprised. He never reached the dizzy heights of a series like Civilization or The Ascent of Man, but his work was equally as important. He was a man who saw beauty in the old and the postmodern. He was equally at home with the vaulted ceiling of the, say, a 16th century chapel, or standing by a postmodern fountain in a modern shopping centre in the heartland of Yorkshire. He was sometimes brutal or withering in tongue, but always honest. He took no prisoners, but he praised the reverence of the instigation of beauty for the appreciation of others. Nairn was no architect. He studied mathematics when he went to join the RAF. He flew early fighter jets just after the war. But Bayek, could he write? In his case, the pen was almost certainly mightier than the sword, and he often went into battle wielding that mightily of instruments. He turned the phrase subtopia in one of his books in the late 50s, a term which is used today by architects, basically a term he penned to describe designers who built substandard eyesores or bland boredom. Heavens knows what he would have made for some of today's use of spaces. But somehow the BBC scooped him up, must have been an avid reader of his book somewhere within the BBC, and with the advent of BBC Two in the policy of cultural development and education of audiences, they were to unleash a whirlwind which would hit the ground running. Really, they just freezed up uh, a size 9 boot that would go round kicking town planners in the arse from Land's End to John O'Groats. Nairn wasn't shy about putting his point across and brought along the audience just to see what he meant, not preaching or talking down to them, but getting them to widen their understanding of why architects design the way they do, and how buildings and spaces should live in harmony with the population and the landscape. He was a realist. He was not an urban terrorist, but a pacifier modernist, with an understanding of creating beautiful spaces for all. He was travelled, but he was no Palin nor a wicker. He appreciated, but he wasn't a Kenneth Clark or Ustinov. He was very ill at ease with the camera, standing in strange poses, appearing to give an air of relaxation but seeming more socially uncomfortable than confident. But as he said, it's not about me. It's the buildings that shout the loudest. There's a wonderful moment in a separate series where he's filming at the Oktoberfest in Munich in 1973. He's among the uh, pie-eyed tourists. The sight of the camera draws them like a moth. So when Ian's walking into shot, berating this group of pissed-up shabby tourists, his words, not mine, one steps right in front of him and completely blocks the camera's view of him. Ian grabs him around the waist and just throws him bodily back into the merry crowd, shouting, excuse me, mate. He follows it up with a direct line to a line which gives me a belly laugh every time, in which he says, look at these bastards, they've drunk more here tonight than they would in a normal year. But this was Ian, and it gave him that unpredictable edge. He was a one-take man who hated retakes and would often say to his production crew, that's it, that's your lot, that's all you're getting. This was his style of presentation, and it smashed the mould, giving an amateur unpolished edge to the series he's did. BBC Collections and iPlayer have three of the latter episodes entitled Nairn Across Britain. They were made in 1972, and this is how I discovered this unconventional, unwilling TV personality. Today, these episodes are a wonderful historical microcosm of Britain, destroying the pre-war and striding into the postmodern, but not always in appreciation of its benefactors, us. 
Episode 1 sees Nairn leave his London home on a straight-line journey to Leeds, but it's not up the M1. Nairn loathed motorways and preferred A and B roads, a journey that today would look very different on its landscape from that of the 1970s. It's all on film, there's no studio work. It's a masterpiece of planning, and sometimes by accident. He travels in his convertible Morris Minor, although he does use several other modes of transport, that being by train and and, uh, canal. But upon entering Northampton Town Centre, we get to witness Nairn in full heartbroken anger as he visits a part of the demolished emporium building and he again in heartbroken terms he says we're admitting what we're probably seeing as the last death throes of a beautiful edifice to be replaced by concrete even if you don't get hot under the collar over a row of buildings you're drawn to this little barrel of a man wearing his elasticated waisted trousers high up across his chest and wearing his white sweaty shirt open to the midriff Nairn has no sartorial elegance whatsoever in fact we don't see him wearing a shirt and tie until he takes a train journey to Scotland and even then he looks as though he's wearing his demob suit the three episodes see Nairn travel from London to Scotland using road, canal and train. I was hooked after 10 minutes. There was something refreshingly normal about Nairn and his presentation and a real magnet of a draw of his personality and his knowledge all intermingled. Within an hour and a half the three episodes are over and I left wanting more. Such an odd attraction is brought to me to this architectural Pied Piper. But Nairn had such a sad demise. Consumed by his work and his troubles, he took to alcohol and he died at the young age of 52 in 1983. He chose to see life through the bottom of a glass, as if he'd given up seeing the beauty around him. He was a man of great passion and true understanding about the symmetry of building, landscape and population. If you want to experience Nairn, have a look on BBC iPlayer for Nairn Across Britain, and let me know what you think. Enjoy. Toddling one to twittering songs Toddling Many thanks for Warren. Yes, thank you, Warren. It's a very interesting article and it encouraged us to watch the three episodes that are on iPlayer and I really rather enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, we say this about sort of Zed Cars and Dixon or Doc Green, mm. that they're a snapshot of like the high street, yes, aren't they, of, of where they're filmed. Another world. I mean, because watching some of it, um, especially the bits where I think it was when it, it's in the second episode where he's filming some of the shopping centres. Mm. I went to shopping centres like that when I was a kid. I mean, I was born in 1972 when this was done. So it was sort of about 10 or so years later. But they all look sort of similar, all very concretey and with the benches and fountains and things. But yeah, it's definitely an interesting series. Yeah, I'm glad Warren suggested it. Yes. Right, next up, Toppy and Paul are back to look at... Night Gallery.
Hello, Round the Archives people. It's me, Paul the Shy Yeti, from the Shy Life Podcast. I'm here again with Toppy Smelly. Hi, Toppy. How are you doing? Hey, Paul. I'm doing good. Hey, all the kind folks out there in Round the Archives. <laughs> um, last time we were on the show together, we did a little bit of a chat about Twilight Zone, and mm-hmm. I did, mm, yeah, and I did promise that we would cover Night Gallery, which is the sort of another anthology series that Bob Serling did a few years down the line, um, which I, I'm a particular fan of. So yeah, that's that's what we're going to do with a particular slant, which I'll come to in a minute. But Toby, I, I asked you this last time with Twilight Zone, but. Um, do you remember a particular time when you watched Night Gallery, or how how was it sort of repeated? Okay, well, Night Gallery, um, we can say right off the bat, never got the kind mm. of fame that Twilight Zone did, and so it never went into syndication, possibly not at all. Mm. And if it did, it was very limited. And so it was quite a revelation to me when I even discovered Mm -hmm. there was such a thing. I think I found out in 76, 77, Mm -hmm. maybe even as late as 78. And it it was because somehow it was on TV. I know that. It may have been late night programming, but uh, it came on and I went, what's this? (laughs) What? Where? When? How? That was, that's. I knew nothing about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was on a funny time for me as well. I saw it in the 80s, but it was um, sort of, again, late night TV. And we're talking about it could be 2 o'clock in the morning. And, and I, I was at the stage where I would set my video for maybe horror films or whatever I, I, I would see. But, you know, if I was going to school the next day, I wasn't going to stay up late. So I set the video for things. And then I, I must have caught the odd episode. And, um, of course, there wasn't yeah. things like Wikipedia and, and all that then so i don't know how much i knew about it or had heard it i I doubt very little i'd have heard of twilight zone but uh, um uh, here's just something funny you know when i saw it first of all it was color mm. and that was weird because twilight zone is you know forever in our minds is in black and white yeah and then rod serling had 19 1970s (laughs) hair (laughs) and i couldn't get over that also, you know, he looked quite a bit older. Mm. It was, it was, you know, weird. Yeah. It was a funny thing to stumble across. I'll, I'll give the audience a few facts. There was a pilot movie uh, which was shown on November the eighth, nineteen sixty-nine, but the actual the first season didn't start until December the sixteenth, nineteen seventy, and it ran until uh, for three seasons until uh, May the 27th, 1973. So, and I was, I was born a, a few months after that. So I would Aww. never, I would have never have seen it, it, it. I would never have seen it at the time, but actually I don't know how much it was shown in the UK in the seventies. I only know about the eighties repeats, but uh, uh, I know that I think with the first two seasons, it was billed as being a 50 minute program, but I think there were often two stories per episode and the third season was just 25 minutes. So there was generally just like just the one story. Although I believe one of the problems that, uh, or the disagreements between Rod Serling and um, I think it was the, the producer Jack Laird uh, that, I think some sometimes episodes had little sort of almost humorous sketches. They were still supernatural, and they were done as a, as, as dramas. There was no laughter track or anything, but they would often be just a funny little quirky bit between. Sure. Uh, and I think that caused some sort of what something didn't really like that. Perhaps he thought it, cha- it sort of changed, shifted the the mood too much. Uh, There's one thing 
that just a general fact that I know about is that perhaps maybe at the beginning Rod Serling thought, you know, I can recapture some of what we have, mm. but very quick, very quickly, he learned, you know, nope, it's the same old TV BS <laughs> with producers not knowing, you know, anything about anything, and they changed things, and they're in control. Rod Serling was not, did not have mm. nearly the control he did with twilight zone and he very quickly said to himself yeah you know i wish i could be done with this right now and consequently he didn't write all that many scripts and Mm -hmm. he really for night gallery we can really say he was a figurehead Mm -hmm. um he was a you know there was rod serling introducing night gallery as he used to do twilight zone Mm -hmm. and really that was kind of the limit uh, of his involvement. Because the, um, uh, the the format of each episode is that it starts and Rod Serling's in like this blackened sort of art gallery where there's a, f- a few paintings in the background, but there's one that he's going to talk about. And and that's one of the strong things. I think some of the, the, the artwork in themselves um, have got quite a following. I think I've seen websites where it's just collected, all, they've collected all of the night gallery paintings together um and um you know there were fans who have kind of managed to see to sit you know those some of those some of those paintings still exist to this day uh, and fans have tracked them down to, sort of posing with 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 photo, photo uh, with, with the actual original artwork from uh, nearly 50 years ago or, yeah 50, slightly over 50 years ago from the for, for the pilot episode but uh, yeah that's true uh, for me the uh, conceit of having these portraits that sort of drew you into a story. They weren't all portraits. I shouldn't say portraits, but paintings. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would draw you. In. And that really, that that had a nice, creepy little factor. Um, because sometimes you, would, you wouldn't find out the connection with the visual mm-hmm. un- until later on. I'll tell you the one episode that used it, in my opinion, the most effectively, was a very early episode with Roddy McDowell. And the story itself concerned a painting where Roddy McDowell was living. Mm. And the painting was used in in the gallery opening. And that was the most one of the most effective uses. Now, naturally, they couldn't keep having stories where, <laughs> you know, somebody had a painting. But yeah. in that particular case with the Roddy McDowell story, which was a story where he kills someone, buries them, and... Every time he looks at a painting, I believe, of the house where he's living, uh, this ghostly figure, you can see it like it's coming out of the grave. The next Mm -hmm. time he looks at the painting, the ghostly figure is closer to the house. The next time, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I remember that one. That's one of it's either in the pilot or it's a very early season one one. Yeah. But um, the, the 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 thing that perhaps I mean uh, one of the things I, I I love about Night Gallery is that it is so seventies and it's quite garish in places. And I'm going to pick through some of the the, the actual different seasons in, in no, a little I, bit. I I don't know if you've explained this on Round the Archives before, but I, I think it's worthy to to define what you just said, garish. But I know you and I have talked about it, but Mm. I know that one of your peculiar fancies Mm. 
<laughs> is early 70s and it's because of the clothing and the makeup and stuff is that i mean that's yeah right. and the color often seems to be exaggerated i mean think of some of those well i particularly like like italian like horror movies of the 70s because you know you see the blood and it looks more like paint and it's but it's kind of almost stylized it's yeah it's, it's just a sort of yeah it's, it, and, and a night gallery does have a lot of that it's very a lot of the stories aren't very subtle, which I I, I love. <laughs> right, um, right. I, and I'll come to one or two of the ones I particularly like because they are sort of very, yeah, uh, you know, very rich, very very broad. Um, yeah. So that's yeah. Oh, go ahead. But, but the 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 title sequence, I I actually like the t- the visuals of the title sequence. Uh, the first couple of seasons have sort of all these strange faces and they're all distorted, and the third season, which I, I will talk about quite a lot because. Uh, I've never really watched a lot of season three episodes, and but in preparation for this article, I've pretty much watched the whole of the third season. So, mm-hmm. they're ones I want to talk to you about because I think they're ones that people don't know so much about. And there are the series is kind of I think the good things that are said about Night Gallery tend to be about the first and second season, and the third season. Uh, I, I, from what I've seen, I I, I rate quite a lot of the stories, and they're quite interesting. But I'll, I'll, I will come back to that. But the music is certainly in comparison to Twilight Zone, it it's not really a tune it's very screechy and sort of like the stabby bits from psycho the, the first and second season have one particular theme and the third season has a different one and, and i don't mind the first and second season theme but the third season one is even is is more of the same but but exaggerated even you i, I find myself turning the volume down <laughs> wait, oh no wait, oh wait. no <laughs> just to get yeah. up, just just it's sort of you know if you're watching an episode at 11 o'clock at night sometimes it's the music that <laughs> you think oh my you're gonna wake i'm gonna and it's not even started yet and it's gonna wake the house on mm-hmm. but, so. the only thing i can add to what you just said is that it certainly wasn't memorable enough for mm-hmm. me to mm-hmm. recall it in any way now of course twilight zone just became part of of our consciousness, our the zeitgeist. Mm. And anytime you were with friends and they did something strange, if you went do 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 do, nobody had to explain what that meant. That's yeah. how iconic Twilight Zone was. And you know, I, it's not surprising that Night Gallery could could never get to that point. But I. I remember nothing. It was completely unremarkable. Yeah, it's sort of quite electronic and sort of. That's interesting because that was an era where electronic yeah. music was was being used and yeah, being we, introduced more. It might just be too avant-garde. I mean, it's not. It, it is composed by people who are um, Billy Goldenberg composed the first the original pilot theme and background music and actually i don't think the background music in the episode i think that's totally fine it's more the theme that i i'm less sort of inspired by mm-hmm. um there was also a composer called gil melee uh and it mentions that in wikipedia that uh, he he was used he was known for sort of using electronic instruments quite early on so it was an experimental theme it just may not be that you're not going yeah. to play it. You're not going to play it at your wedding, for instance. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> um, Paul. Is your recollection that they did uh, the the electronic music was part of the opening, but did they use it for the incidental music? Uh, I'm not. I think they probably did, but the the music sort of does 
fit the type of thing. It's not like, I mean, I've seen a few shows recently where I've watched, I, I was reviewing um, a series around the archives a couple of months ago and it wasn't supposed to be like a sitcom or, or, or a comedy show, but it was supposed to be like almost like a soap opera or a drama and the, th- the music that was used, I was watching it thinking, it doesn't really go with it. And I guess the music does sort of go with the night gallery. It, and I've seen a lot of people kind of who remember it for the first time around um, looking at sort of comments on YouTube and stuff. People say, oh, this really scared me. And, and yeah, it certainly, especially with the visuals, it is a scary title sequence. It's just not as memorable as, uh, by any means as the Twilight Zone. And, but I kind of forget, of course, it was only when I came to look at Twilight Zone again before we reviewed it last time, is, is that that Twilight Zone theme music isn't used from season one. It kind of comes in season two or season three it so you know that really did stake its mark to the point where people sort of would presume that it always been the theme yeah it sort of grew organically Mm. there there was something of it right from the beginning Mm. but they 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 expanded it it, yeah Um, yeah for the actual the full piece that we know as the theme yeah yeah it took a while to get to that to being that fully formed but uh, going back to night gallery now there's a few things that I want to talk about the things that were successful about it to start with that were in its early seasons. So the pilot episode was featured the directorial debut of Steven Spielberg. Most uh, famously. Yes. And it also contained one of the last acting performances by Joan Crawford. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean the whole way through the series, the special guests are top notch and, even in the third season, you know, you've got Leonard Nimoy, you've got um, Dean Stockwell, you've got um, Vincent Price, and a lot of yeah. these people had been, had, it wasn't their first, it was perhaps their second or third, in the same way as a lot of the guests kept coming back to Twilight Zone, they kept right. coming back to this as well. So, And one, uh, one of the reasons that they were able to get these guests was truly because Rod Serling was attached to it, mm, to the project. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Another thing, it says here, Night Gallery was initially part of a rotating anthology or wheel series called Four in One, and that's uh, the same series. So, for, I mean, McLeod was one of the shows um, in, in that. Oh, uh, see, I never knew that. It was part of what they used to call the Sunday Night Movie Mystery mm-hmm. Movie. Mm-hmm. Columbo was part of that. McLeod. Um, McMillan and Wife. McMillan and Wife. So uh, that's really where it started. Yeah, I, I presume it's the same wheel series because they only mentioned McLeod, but my understanding was that, and I guess obviously some series is um, apparently origi- originally, or perhaps it was seasonal, but um, um, apparently it rotated four separate shows, McLeod, SFX, which was San Francisco International Airport, The Psychiatri- Psychiatrist, and Night Gallery, and Night Gallery and McLeod, were the only ones to move to to have sort of re- renewed for second series. So I don't know if Macmillan and Wife was a bit, perhaps a little bit later, and maybe um, Columbo. Well, Columbo started in the late the late sixties. So yeah, I can only say Macmillan and Life. Yes. Uh, Macmillan yeah. and Wife was it was definitely after Columbo yeah. and yes. yeah. Yeah. McLeod. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I have got I have got a DVD of McLeod somewhere. Uh, maybe that's uh, maybe that's one I need to cover at some point later stage. Yeah, uh, uh, but McLeod's boss had a particular voice, <laughs> and in every episode, you know, he was yelling after McLeod. McLeod. Right. <laughs> Anyways, now also so some of the episodes that Rod Serling did write include 
Camera Obscura, which was based on a short story by Basil Cooper, The Caterpillar, uh, based on a short story by Oscar Cook, The Class of 99, Cool Air, based on a short story by H.P. Lovecraft. And there were a number of other ones, but the one that the series is particularly known for, because it was actually nominated for an Emmy Award in its first season for an episode called They're Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar. Uh, um, yes, and I, I don't believe I've ever seen it, but I have certainly mm. read about it and heard about it. And it also had um, another nomination in the second season for an episode called Pickman's Model. H.P. Lovecraft, known to the aficionados of the occult, demonology, witchcraft, as a master storyteller, is responsible for our first selection in this museum of the frequently morbid. To you connoisseurs of the black arts, you will probably recognize it. It's a painting that tells the story of a young artist who recruits his models from odd places. And the models are very odd indeed. The painter's name, incidentally, is Pickman. And where else would you see a story like this except in the Night Gallery? And Rod, Rod Serling received an Edgar Allan Poe Award for writing the pilot episode. So, so this isn't a series that was kind of a damp squib you know, or considered a damp script from the start. I mean, I don't think it's a damp script. I think, you know, having seen the third season episodes recently, yeah, maybe it's not as good by the third season. Yeah. But, um, uh, I, I, I only know that Rod Serling sort of like pulled back and said, mm-hmm. okay, I eat it. Uh, I'll do what I have to do contractually. But, yeah. And so, so he was less and less involved, uh, particularly third season. There is a slightly confusing other extra thing about there was a, a short-lived supernatural series in 1972 called The Sixth Sense, yes. um, and that was incorporated into syndicated versions of the series. So sometimes you'd get an episode of The Sixth Sense as an episode of, of Night Gallery. Or, um, I don't know. I've not seen any versions where they've stuck the title. Right. Stuck. I'm not quite sure how that worked, but. I, I um, think the only, the only thing I know about that, Paul, is it's very peculiar, very odd. Apparently, the two series were at least owned by the same studio, mm-hmm. at least. Maybe had the same producers. I don't know. Gary Collins was in it. Good Lord. And um, apparently, it was strictly a decision that was made. Okay, so we've got these weird length episodes of night gallery how are we going to package this and they said i know we've got this stupid thing with gary collins called the sixth sense it's sort of like creepy it's sort of like spooky but not really but let's (laughs) and so they they just put it all together and i think you'll find episodes of that on youtube i believe to start with in the uk when i tried to buy night gallery i had to buy region one american releases i think you now can buy it european region um but i also bought the first season like off itunes and i think there was at least one episode of six cents as a sort of bonus uh, feature but uh, yeah um yeah just just so you know i i sort of like i went gary collins and and that's <laughs> purely because of his career which finished basically he you know didn't really go far as far as acting was and then he became a talk show host <laughs> and that's what he that's what he did he became a talk show host <laughs> of a particularly bad talk show oh, <laughs> um, and, and I suppose the other reason yeah, that they needed extra 
material to bulk out for syndication was that there were only ever 43 episodes of Night Gallery. Um, True. Although there were obviously more stories in 43 because of each, a lot of the episode, early episodes having more than one story. But uh, um, yeah, I must look into, I must look more into the Sixth Sense later. But uh, um, the, the weird thing that I remember about the repeats that we had on late night TV in the UK was that they would like tear how episodes apart or you'd sometimes, I believe like if they had five minutes after a movie before perhaps the news was coming on or something else, sometimes you, those comedy, those sort of comedy sequences that uh, I, I mentioned, um, I, they just show one of those like for five minutes, just to bulk out a bit of space at one o'clock in the morning. So I really didn't get to, see night gallery in the way it was intended uh, until i bought the dvds but uh, yeah that's a, that's really interesting the way they they packaged that uh, it was it was kind of a mess <laughs> now uh, we're going to look at um we won't, we won't sort of hover for ages but i just want to kind of go through some of the first season episodes more partly to look at the sort of uh, the people who who were sort of showing up for it in, in, in one of the very early episodes of season one we had larry hagman yeah. um, and uh, diane keaton wow. was, in, was in an episode called room with a view that the plot of that a crafty old invalid plans a fiendish revenge against his faceless faithless wife with the unwitting aid of his nurse and diane keaton paid, played the nurse and I think the reasons I like Night Gallery is that it is more horror, thriller, supernatural. And although I like sci-fi, and I but I also like those other things just as much. And although I'm sure Twilight Zone did wasn't always sci-fi, there are... There, it there was are, a mix. Yeah, it was a mix. And there, but um, I agree, Night Gallery was more, it was mm, more horror. Mm, Absolutely. Now there's an episode called The Little Black Bag in season one that which has Burgess Meredith. And I was watching an episode season three with uh, Burgess Meredith in, so he's definitely one of the people who, who came back for more. And um ha, uh there's an episode called Certain Shadows on the Wall, which I think it's about sisters uh, it's an, an ailing woman dies under the care of her sinister brother, but her accusing shadow remains indelibly cast on the parlor wall. And mm. uh, the special guests in that one include two of my very favourites, and I'm sure they're favourites of yours too, Agnes Moorhead and Grayson Hall from Dark Shadows. Oh my God, Paul. <laughs> if, there's, if I watch nothing else in the next three days, I'm watching that episode of course agnes moorhead from bewitched um grace and all oh my god the the next episode after that has tom bosley in um, <laughs> we have phyllis diller john oh Ast- my god john astin um, and i've seen again i saw J- john astin in a season three episode now uh, just so folks know uh, just to connect him uh, he, he played um, what's his face <laughs> in, in, oh, yeah. in, in the Adams, the Adams family, family. family yeah. Yeah. now they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar which is uh, the one that got nominated has uh, Diane Baker William Wyndham um, John Randolph and Bert Convy um, wow Bert uh, Convy that's a 70s name that I haven't <laughs> heard in a while yeah holy cow Paul Bert Convy the following episode, The Last Laurel, has Jack Cassidy and Martin Beswick oh, in. Jack I, Cassidy. I, I, oh. reckon, <laughs> I reckon that 
because the good thing is the the site I'm looking on has the sort of I guess they were the screenshots off off the actual episodes, but I can recognize I recognize the faces even if I don't know the names. But uh, now the the first the first season was a shorter season. It it only had like six episodes, but so I think there were two two stories. Now what that tells me is that you know back in these days when we had our our three major networks. Mm. There was a date, a time, a September, where they launched their new season. Yes. And that was a big, big, big deal. But round about mm, April, May, I'm not exactly sure which, they would do a soft launch of their mid-season. That's what it was called, <clears throat> mid-season replacements. And that tells me that possibly... Night Gallery was a mid-season replacement, which means it didn't debut yeah. in September. It debuted more like February, March, something. Yeah, it was, it was very late. In, it was December, but which is a weird time to start. You wouldn't think you'd start anything around Christmas. But yeah, the, 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 the second season... That was twenty-two episodes, uh, so that was a that was probably the season where it was most like a normal. Uh, yeah, that was series. a full season. Um, and then the first the first story of um, the second season has uh, Clint Howard in it. <gasps> oh, he was everywhere, Clint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was in which Star Trek episode was he in? He well, was well, Corbinite. Mm. Maneuver. Yes, that's right. Now, uh, but for folks who don't know, Clint Howard is famously Ron Howard, the famous director, also Opie and Andy Griffith. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's his brother, and uh, while Ron Howard became a kind of very well known, uh, Clint Howard remained always a, a background character actor, but in a thousand million. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, one of the other episodes in season two, the hand of Borgus Weems has Ray Milland in. Now, Ray Milland was had a very interesting career in the seventies. Oh, did he ever? Yeah, I, I, I saw him in a latish seventies Italian sort of giallo only a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I know he did a lot of European films and a lot of really schlocky films. Yes. Well, okay. Yes, he did. We, we won't go into it, but um, uh, he, he needed, well, he was one of those actors that kind of was broke towards the end of his life. And therefore, there was a period where he would accept just about anything that was offered. Oh, dear. One of the other episodes in season two has uh, Death in the Family has Desi Arnaz Jr. in. Oh, my God. <laughs> I never heard of that one. Yeah, and the the there's an episode the class of the the class of ninety nine, which is a Rod Serling one, and uh, that the plot of that is a, a graduating class of the future takes a particularly revealing final exam. Actually, there's a, a movie of of that title. That's an episode with uh, Vincent Price. I think that's oh, that's. No uh, uh, I think I, I I recall that one. The actress Moorhead obviously liked doing Night Gallery because she is in a an, an episode called Witch's Feast. Ah, uh, perfect. Uh, with Ruth uh, Boozy, Buzzy? Buzzy. Uh-huh. Ruth Buzzy? You've got to be kidding. Yeah, I don't think I know who oh she is. Oh, my God. She was on Laughing. She's known basically uh, as a comedic actress. Yes. Ruth Buzzy, for yes. heaven's sakes. <laughs> And, and a name that's come up before when we've done articles, uh, Victor Bueno was in an episode called Satisfaction Guaranteed. Mm-hmm. The following episode, since Aunt Ada came to stay, has 
James Farentino, Michelle Lee, oh. uh, Jeanette Nolan, and Jonathan Harris from Lost no in Space. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Lost in Space is Jonathan Harris. There is no doubt about it, folks. If you love these old stars that you know particularly inhabited TV in this era, there is just sheer joy to be had with Night Gallery with, uh, with these yeah. stars. Yeah, I do want to talk a bit about season three, but I will just quickly give you an idea of some of the other people. I won't stop to to tell you episode names, but for the rest of season two, we have Adam West. uh, We have Patrick O'Neill. We have... And I'm sure there's other names that uh, you would know that I I don't. Pat Boone. uh, Pat Boone. Yeah. Oh, God, he was a recording artist. Yes, yeah. Leif Erickson. Uh, um, David McCallum. Yay! Of course, of yes. course, he was in this. Uh, the Phantom Farmhouse and David Carradine. Orson <gasps> we- Wells. Orson oh Wells. my god! In an episode called Silent Snow, Secret Snow. Uh, Leslie Nielsen. Uh, uh, I think he was in more than one. I believe he's in an episode where he's like the Phantom of the Opera because um, I saw he, him credited that he, um, and you couldn't see that it was him. But there's another episode where you can see it's him. So I guess maybe he did them both at the same time. But uh, wow. who else have we got? Patty Duke. Why do I know that name? Mm. Well, she she was um, uh, made her name on, on Broadway in The Miracle Worker playing the uh, deaf, dumb child. Oh. Uh, Patty Duke went on to have a movie career, a couple, well, maybe one TV series. Mm. Patty Duke, on Matinee Minutia, we did You'll Like My Mother. Patty Duke mm-hmm. was in that. Okay. Um, yeah. We've also got Cesar Romero. John Cesar Romero. Cesar yeah. Romero, yeah. Uh, he was John, the Joker on Batman. Yeah. John Carradine. Oh, Victor Bueno again. I wonder if, I think some of these ones are, are short, like those, because I know the second season is sort of criticised by, well, by, by Rod himself for these sort of little, little sketches. But Victor Bueno, <laughs> there's a picture here of Victor Bueno as a, as a sort of a fat vampire. The episode's ah. called... A, mid- a midnight visit to the neighborhood blood bank. Uh, yeah, folks, yeah. you'd have to be able to visualize Victor Bourne to, to know why it would be humorous to have him portray a vampire. <laughs> uh, there's, an, there's another episode yeah. here with another another appearance by John Astin, and he looks like he's dressed up like a hippie. Oh. Uh, Joanna Pettit, I recognize her name. Oh, uh, I don't. Uh, hmm. We've mentioned his name before, and I can never pronounce it. René Aubergenois. Oh, dear Lord. Why can't we ever remember how to pronounce this <laughs> actor's name? René Aubergenois. That, ah, right, might, yeah. that might be close. Yes. He was in an episode called Camera Obscura with Ross Martin. And I've seen, <gasps> Ross, I've seen Ross Martin, in a, uh, who was in The Wild Wild West, of course, which we've covered together. And Ross Martin was in a season three episode. So, again, another example of people who have uh, come back for uh, yeah. <laughs> this. Honest, make you... Yeah. Honestly, this... folks, the, the guest stars alone are reason enough to tune into this thing. But um, uh, all these famous names, and yet the the best. Well, actually, the best I'll keep to last. But uh, I've just noticed there's an episode called Lagoda's Head, which has Patrick McNee. Uh, <gasps> but the, yes, the, the the name that you're you're waiting to hear from me for, from this season, the big star of one episode is Zaza Gabor. 
<laughs> yes, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, they're literally, and because this is the longest season, there literally are so, so many guest stars that, and, and more that I can see that I just haven't got time to mention because I do want to. Uh, oh, Carol Lindley, Nick would be pleased. Carol Lindley's in an episode. Uh, uh, Bill, uh, 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 and, Carol Lindley, now, uh, she she was in Poseidon Adventure? That's right, yes. And okay, Bill, yeah. Bill Bixby's in the same episode. <gasps> Bill Bixby uh, was in Night Gallery. He was. And, um, oh and well, God. actually, he's another one who I saw in season three as well. So, uh, <gasps> yeah, so he's in it more than once. And and really, and John Saxon, he's in an episode and he was a kind of movie star as well. Oh, he was all over the place in the 70s. What a working actor he was. He was in every, he was all over movies, TV. Oh, my God. Uh, whereas Twilight Zone often has people who were very early on in their their careers, like Martin Lando, I saw an episode, and 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 that was sort of that was one quite an early role for him. Whereas the people who are in Night Gallery, they are, you know, really famous people, and they probably would have been very famous people, at the, um, uh, or, or certainly people who'd been seen quite a lot on TV back in the sixties, who 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 were sort of um, well known, but. Uh, so before we finish, I just want to mention as it's a, it's a it's a shorter season, the third season. But it, yeah, it, um, I really want to hear what you have to say about this because I know nothing about season three. And first of all, can you just tell me was it a full season or did it get canceled? How I many? Do you know it, how many episodes? Well, it says it, yeah, it says there's fifteen. Uh, okay, were, so yeah, so I think it was it, short. Yeah, it started it, in September, but it finished early. It was probably cancelled, and that's why there's only 15. What What do you know about this? I, I know nothing. Because I, I hadn't sat and watched this as a season, I, I and there's not so many episodes. I managed to get through it pretty much over the last couple of days. But the, the first episode starts with a, a Vincent Price episode, uh, and he's uh, a sorcerer who's, who hires a translator to divine the meaning of an ancient Arabic manuscript that has some grisly connection with his twin brother's death. It's got Bill Bixby in, so, Ooh, you know. There you go. Um, also, question, Paul. Mm. Uh, I, I think I understood you to say that this third season, all episodes had been reduced to half an hour. Is that That's correct? Right. Yeah, that okay. is right, yeah. The first episode, I, I was I was at first sort of keen because Bill Bixby, Vincent Price, but it, it probably, story-wise, wasn't... So I found myself a bit losing, losing the 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 part the path of what was that was going on a bit. But the following episode, the girl with the hungry eyes, um, had Jan- James Farantino and Joanna Pettit and and John John Astin, and that was sort of the plot is a photographer hires a mysterious model whose eyes burn with a seductive yet frightening glow, and mm-hmm. um, and, and and that that was quite good. And some of the effects were quite good for the. She was sort of. A bit of this model was sort of a vampire type character who was bewitching people who looked at her poster. I did mm. see a review that kind of exposed some of the sort of, you know, well, how, you know, how come she picked this this guy of all the people in the world? How does and, and I was like, yeah, 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 night gallery. You're not trying to analyze every last bit out of it. It's, it's, it, it, it was it was an <laughs> enjoyable episode, mm-hmm. and um, some of the other episodes. There was an episode with Raymond Massey and Mickey Rooney, um, which mm. was about a. Uh, sort of well he was a gangster and he did a he sort of did a deal with don't know if it was the devil or who it was but uh, he he sort of getting into a lot of trouble and this figure offers to um save him from the problems but then he finds himself a sort of exhibit as uh, in this sort of museum of notorious 
villains and and yeah it, it had a bit of a a typical night gallery twist which i i, I sort of like like other episodes that are particularly were notable there was a weird episode which had roger davis from also from dark shadows um oh my god i got to see that. <laughs> um i have to see this and, and that was about a bungling inventor and his forgetful wife pull their ineptitude for an experiment in, immort- in immortality. Um, that was a teleplay by Rod um, Sterling, but it was a, a based on a, 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 a story. There was a very weird one, and this was uh, like at the end of an episode, just the last few minutes, called Smile, Please. Uh, it has Césaire de Nova, who I don't know that name at no, all. No, I don't, uh, don't recognise that. But the, there's a girl played by Lindsay Wagner. Oh! Um, and... Um, it really is a, a Lindsay Wagner's playing a photographer who's been invited to, to come down to the, the cellar to take a picture of a real live vampire. And of course the guy who brings her down turns out to be the real live vampire. And I mean, this literally takes place over about three minutes. It is, I mean, it, it reminds me of, I mean, I went for a stage myself of writing like hundred word stories and really a well, hundred word stories. is basically a punchline to a twist uh, and 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 smile please is an example of a, you've barely been introduced to what the story's about and then it finishes with a twist but i think they're fun i, I think bet they are you know until you told me this i had no idea they had things that short mm. they usually were either at the end of an episode or in the longer episodes perhaps between the two stories there's another episode with ross martin called the other way out um there's an episode called fright night with with um, Stuart Whitman and Barbara Anderson from Ironside, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a kind of weird one about this box. Um, so the, the they're a couple and they inherit a farmhouse, and there's a trunk, and they're t- they're they're told never to move it, but it keeps moving itself. And I think one of the things I really like about uh, Night Gallery is sometimes when they show you the monster or they show you the 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 thing, it's very much there in front of you. You see everything. It's not like mm. hide, not hidden in shadow, and you know it's very bold. It's very sort of in your face, and I kind of I kind of like that. Well, let me ask you about that. You say you liked it. Now, would you say that these special makeup effects were good, or, or were they like, oh my god, that like Lost in Space laughable? No, <laughs> I think they're a little bit above Lost in Space, but yeah. but they're kind of very of their time. But I like the real effects. A lot of modern stuff, I would rather they did makeup work than did CGI. Oh, uh, yes, and I, yes. and, yeah, and I and I really I really like that. Other episodes in season three: Dean Dean Stockwell, Sally Field. Oh um, God, really? Yeah, there's an episode called Death on a Barge with Leslie Warren. Which is about a vampire. Um, oh, they like their vampires. They do like vampires, show. yeah. There's one with Leonard Nimoy to do with a cat, which gets a bit confusing, but uh, he gets to <laughs> he gets to overact quite a lot in that one. And there's another Burgess Meredith one. Oh. Um, Speaking of cats, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Paul, um, I don't know if you you collected any information, but I'm interested if you remember any other writers and particularly i guess what i really want to ask is richard matheson wrote some great things for twilight zone and in this early 70s area richard matheson was just pumping out great scripts did do you know if he did anything for night gallery there's uh, a one in season two called the big surprise by richard matheson ah, okay. and 
I knew yeah. he had to be in there somewhere. Yeah, certainly. But, and then there's another one called The Funeral, which is another vampire one. So, yeah, he was involved, whether he was directly involved or whether they, they were sort of, whether he came in specially to write up, whether it was something he'd been working on or, because um, I know he was certainly very heavily involved in Twilight Zone. But uh, anyway, well, I think that's about all we've got time for. Thank you, Toppy, for talking about Night Gallery with me. Yeah, this was a nice series to reflect about, uh, but in particular, just all these crazy great guest stars. <laughs> yeah, if you do keep right, we've got to head off. We'll be back again soon. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Lisa. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Thank you very much to Toppy and Paul. Yes, thank you, boys. And Dealey. And Dealey. Who, who yeah. had to chip in. Yes, he had a little meow. Yeah, that's Bless good. Bless Only one more article to do mm-hmm. on this episode. Yes. We shall do it. Yes. So we'd just like to say thank you to everyone. Martha's playing in the background now. <laughs> Rose was playing on the previous episode, yes. wasn't she? Yes, yeah. cats are playing. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. it's cats galore. Yeah. But yeah, thank you to everyone for... Helping with episode 50A and 50B. Yes. Thank you to everyone for listening. Yes, indeed. Astonishingly, episode 50A is already in our top 10 of most listened to things ever, and it's only been out two weeks as I record this. Gosh. Uh, I I tweeted it was at position 9. It's already zoomed up to position 8. Wow. Since I I tweeted a couple of days ago. Goodness Mm -hmm. me. So, episode 51 will be along in due course. Yes. I know pretty much everything that's going on there. Mm-hmm. So we'll just say thank you, and here yes. comes the final article. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. What is the final article? Oh, I forgot to say, didn't I? Did I was you? so excited in getting out the door <laughs> I didn't bother to say. Mm. So, yes, here's Andrew and Lisa looking at... Talking Heads. Good afternoon, Lisa. Good afternoon, Andrew. So, what have you been watching in the lockdown, then? What have I been watching? I've been watching an awful lot of Alan Bennett's Talking Heads. Yeah. In fact, I think I've seen them all three times now. When you say Alan Bennett's Talking Heads... Yes. We've we've got to be sort of specific here. Yes. In that there's the Talking Heads series from 1988. Mm Mm-hmm. There's its follow-up series from 1998. Yes. And then the remakes... Mm-hmm. from 2020 well the answer is i've been watching all of those yeah so the remakes yes what why we remake talking heads at this this point in history because it's a very well i'm not saying very easy it's an easy thing to do in this current situation where you have to maintain a distance between the actors and, and production team yeah so when it's just one person you can quite easily keep two meters away from them and it, it cuts down on the amount of production staff that need to be on the set at the time. And is it true that they filmed some of it on, on East Ender sets? They filmed sets all of things? it on the East Ender set. Oh, that's useful. Because it's a standing set. Yeah. Um, it's at Elstree, so it's easy for most people to get to. And yeah. the people there know how to do drama quickly. 
but these are mostly remakes of the plays from last century. That sounds yes, weird, doesn't it? it does. But you said there are a couple of additional new ones? Yes. But when I say new ones, he didn't write them recently. He wrote them a few years ago, and he gave them to um, Nicholas Heitner, who's the executive producer, who forgot about them, <laughs> and Alan Bennett forgot about them. And then they, he rediscovered them and thought they'd put the extra ones on as well. When you say rediscovered, what, down the back of the sofa or something? found it in a drawer or something yeah. or what, he'd remembered yeah what was it you were saying about the scripts alan bennett doesn't write on a computer no he writes in longhand and he writes on a typewriter so he phoned him up and said these two new ones you wrote what would you think about us doing those he's yeah. like, i think alan bennett was like did i write new ones oh have you got copies because i'm not sure i have because he he wasn't sure he'd kept copies so yeah. eventually he did find copies of it because he's got it in his filing system, and they tweaked them a bit, yeah. um, and they produced those as well. Because you, as you've noted, there are some minor changes between yes. the original productions and, yes. and the latest ones. Yeah. But not, not that, they're not that different, no, are they? No, there's one particular line they've removed, which I won't mention it, but it's, it's in a bed among the lentils, and if you want to look it up, you can. Yeah. They've taken one line out. A few bits they've had to put a sort of note on it that this is set in the 1980s and therefore reflects the language and attitudes of that time one has actually got a ruder word than the original production hasn't it although as you you've said in the original play or at least in the book yeah it's 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 got the ruder word there as well so we've actually gone back to the original text possibly yes but let's just go through and and see what we've got for people that don't right don't know there was a 1982 Two, mm-hmm. one, a woman of no importance, and that's Patricia Routledge. Yes, and of course she she returns in the in the nineteen eighty eight ones. Mm-hmm. But the nineteen eighty eight series starts off on the nineteenth of April, nineteen eighty eight, with Alan Bennett himself playing Graham in a chip in the sugar, and yes. that's the one that I always remember mm-hmm. uh, when you when you say Talking Heads. That's the first thing that comes into my head. Yes, and I'd always assumed it was BBC Two, mm-hmm. but it's actually BBC One after the nine o'clock news. Okay, so the schedule for that night runs uh, three up, two down at seven o'clock. Mm-hmm. EastEnders, mm-hmm. Question of Sport, Steptoe and Son Porn yesterday, nine o'clock news. And half past nine, talking heads, a chip in the sugar. Mm-hmm. A middle-aged man who lives with his mother finds her taking up with an old flame. Book, Talking Heads by Alan Bennett, £4.95 from booksellers. Mm. Is that what it says on the back of your book? Let's have a look. Um, yes. £4.95. £4.95. There you go. Yeah. But yeah, th- this, I think, it's no great secret mm-hmm. that he draws on a lot of real life. Yes. In... In, yes. in his in his things because they say you know write about what you know what you know and, okay. and indeed who you know though i do worry about some of them yeah why because some of them are very dark yeah which i'm not sure people expected when they watched the remakes but didn't you say that he doesn't intend things to be dark they just sort of end up that yes. way he says that for the second series of talking heads 2 which which he started to write before 1988 but it took him 10 years mm. to get to it because he kept writing a bit and looking at it and putting it away and then getting it out again and because um, he what he thought it was too dark mm. because the second set features playing sandwiches yeah. which features David Haig as um a child molester yeah but you were watching sort of you had twitter open yes. whilst these were on mm-hmm. and the amount of shocked people oh, that, was... that thought alan bennett was yeah. all nice and fluffy because yeah. i think what what 
happens what's happened over time is that people have sort of got this idea in their head mm-hmm. what talking heads is like yes. based on like the kitty sketches from victoria wood mm-hmm. and and a few um sort of parodies yes because there, there's a there's a stephen fry and hugh laurie parody of, mm-hmm. of it and yeah when you actually get hit the real stuff yes people go oh Yes. That's not what we were expecting. No, it, I mean it's extraordinary that um, I think the second one they showed because uh, they, they they showed them in pairs mm. and the the whole set was available as a box set as I like to call it on the iPlayer so you could watch it at any time you wanted to. But the second one they showed was um, featuring Sarah Lancashire, which is an ordinary woman, mm. which features the somewhat um, delicate subject of incest mm. or potential incest because no incest actually happens but she falls in love with her son and it's it's based on a sort of ancient greek play that he read when he was at school yeah but on the original run you've also got apart from alan bennett and patricia routledge you've got maggie smith Mm -hmm. stephanie cole yes Julie Walters yes. and Thora Heard. Yeah. And again, possibly the Thora Heard thing makes people think it's yes. it's like Kitty, don't, don't yeah. they? Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, they didn't do, they couldn't do the two Thora Heard ones this year because um, they're not working with any actors over a certain age. Mm. So I haven't looked at those or watched those purely because they haven't been covered in the remakes. Yeah. But Lady of Letters, um, mm. it goes on quite a dark turn. It does. After it while, starts off it? quite sort of. We just think, oh yeah, she's she's just a busybody. She's body. a busybody, and then you realise she's writing these really horrible, nasty poison pen letters to people. Yeah. Bed among the lentils is Maggie Smith, isn't yes. it? So um, let's just see who who replaces who in so in she, these. She's replaced by Leslie Manville. Yeah. Yeah. Stephanie Cole is soldiering on. Yep. So who's who's uh, Harriet on? Walter does right. that one? Yeah. Eileen Atkins is in Hand of God. Yes, and that's Kristen Scott Thomas. Yeah. I mean, Alan Bennett himself is replaced by Martin Freeman. Yes, and apparently he was delighted. For chipping the sugar. What did he say? Don't play it like me. Don't tell him not to play it like me, which any actor wouldn't do anyway. Yeah. I mean, you can make all these comparisons with with sort of the the different styles of acting. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of it is in the rhythm of the words. Yes. But it does show how actors can put a different spin on things, doesn't it? yeah, definitely, because... A chip in the sugar. Mm. Uh, when Martin Freeman does it, he's a lot angrier. Yeah. Alan Bennett's version is quite gentle, and there's a lot of pauses. And whereas Martin Freeman's, it's obviously it's the way drama is shot now. Yeah. That the pauses aren't so long, and it gets a lot angrier. There's, you know, he's angry about the things that are happening to him, and the fact that his mother has met an old flame, and that she might marry him, and he might be thrown out of the home that yeah. he lived in. Now, now, for Miss Fozard Finds Her Feet, you yes. said it was an interesting choice of replacement. Yes. It's the age thing here, isn't it? It is. Yeah. But so I-, I noticed as well, when we I watched it again yesterday, because what, what I've been doing is I watched the remake, mm. watched the original, and then watched the remake again, just yeah. so that I can compare it. So actually, you've watched most of these three times yes. in various versions, yeah. yes. and Because it's Patricia Routledge in the first... Yes incarnation yeah. isn't and it and she's 69 when she does it yeah so really she's too old for she's supposed to be working in a sort of department store and i get the idea you read when you read the introduction to talking heads too which it was part of alan bennett says it the story is named after a store that he knew as a child mm. in leeds and it's like a sort of northern version of grace brothers yeah you know, one of those stores that has lots of different departments that you don't really get these days. So really, she probably Patricia Routledge was too old because yeah. she would have retired. Yeah, retired at sixty then. 
but they get Maxine Peake to play it. Mm-hmm. And she's, I mean, she's 46, so she's still in a sort of, I am biased here because I'm only a little bit older than that, the peak of her life. And the character is a bit sort of like, she's biased, as it says, he says in his introduction, she's past childbearing age, yeah. which Maxine Peake is obviously not. And she's sliding down towards being an old maid. Mm. And I don't think it works so much with Maxine Peake because she's that little bit younger. But I notice because um, she visits this chiropodist called Mr. Dunderdale. And he, in the original, he's 70. And they've pulled it down to 60 All right. to make it not quite so because of what happens in it to make mm. it not quite so creepy okay i think you've got julie walters playing leslie in her big chance yes. and and she's an actress in that one yes and she ends up in a sort of is it a porny film it, i think it is a porno it took me ages to realize that yeah. and reading the introduction to the new because the, the two new plays of are, are going to be released as a book it's already out on kindle it'll be out in paperback later in the year and in the introduction of that, Nicholas Knight says about a porno, and it suddenly it just clicked and went, "Oh God, of course it's a porno." You're so innocent sometimes, but I just like the fact that the character she plays in the film, yeah. in the play, if yes. you see what I mean, is called Travis. Yes, which you know, when you know you're Blake Seven, that puts a whole different spin on it, doesn't yes. it? You know, Travis hasn't uh, having to get his top off and his, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and more and more besides, actually. Yes. It's quite interesting that because Jodie Comer plays that in the in the remake mm. and sometimes again some of them i don't know if they were written for a particular actor or actress but sometimes in a lady of letters you can do it and in her big chance you can hear the original actor's voice mm. in the lines and it might be something to do with the rhythm of the lines because particularly in a lady of letters it's a real sort of you can almost hear patricia routledge saying it without having seen her play the part yeah. so yeah you could I could sort of hear Julie Waters a little bit playing it but she does it very well Jodie Comer and it's really interesting because obviously they do that again on the East Enders set and there's one scene in it where there's just in the original they've just put some sort of arc lamps whereas I think in the remake they actually go behind the flat mm. of the scenery and film it there so All it's right. actually properly behind the scenes but you, you say you say about sort of language and, and yes. that. You did a word count just now, didn't I did. you? What word I did. did you want to look up? Well, I looked up what not. What he, not? He uses the word what not a lot. And through the two Talking Heads books, it's mentioned 21 times, which is not as many as I thought. Okay. And he also uses swills as well. Yeah. Because there's a line about Graham says to his mother, give us your teeth. I'll swill, I'll swill I'll them. I'll swill them. Yeah. And that's only mentioned about nine times. But again, that feels like it's a lot more. I think that's because in The Outside Dog, which is from Talking Heads 2, which is originally a Julie Waters one, which was this time played by Roshenda Sandal, mm-hmm. it's mentioned a lot. Yeah. Because, and that one is actually a really hard one to watch. Not just for the fact that it's about the wife of a, of a serial killer, but you don't actually really like the character very much. She's very uptight and quite hard to like. Yeah. But I think she's built a sort of shell up amongst herself with the cleaning because of the kind of life she leads. It's weird how you, you engage with some characters more than others. I mean, Chip in the Sugar has got one of my favourite odd lines in the whole of, like, yeah. playwriting, which is, uh, this tea looks strong, pull the curtains. Mm. <laughs> which, it, it is, sounds like just something odd, yeah. but I can believe that somebody would, would say, say that. 
Yeah, I think one of my favourite lines is is from uh, Miss Fossard finds her feet, where she's talking. She talks to one of her colleagues and she says, well, if I do mention Mr. Dunderdale, she mentions Oliver Cromwell. And <laughs> for some reason, I'm thinking, God, that's such an Alan Bennett line. Yeah. There's something about the rhythm of that line that nobody else could have written it. Hmm. So, yeah, so what, what's your favourite ones then, you reckon? Um, what's the standout ones for you? Well, I do like a, a chip in the sugar yeah. because amongst all of them, it's actually, although it deals with mental illness... Yeah. Because obviously Graham has mental health issues. I think it's one of the lighter, nicer ones. Miss mm. Fossard finds her feet, I think, as well, is a lighter one because it ends with her having the upper hand in many ways over. Or the, the upper foot. Or the upper foot. Yeah, I, they're the two that I think are sort of probably the ones that you end up come out of not feeling quite so depressed. Yeah at the end of it I mean obviously things like playing sandwiches is a very dark one and that's quite a hard watch the outside dog is quite a hard watch I ended up feeling sorry for Celia in the hand of God because she comes across as an expert and then she misses out on a huge find because there's a as a picture she's been given amongst a box of oddments that's believed to be a copy of the finger from the Sistine Chapel or like a, a, a initial drawing for it that's worse off £17 million pounds or something. And they're lying about the, the South Bank show or something. Yes, yeah. yes. Like the thing on the, the South Bank show. But yeah, they're, they're both good. I mean, obviously, with the new ones, the, the Sarah Lancashire one, again, is, is a bit of a hard watch. And there's another one with Monica Dolan, The Shrine, which is about a, a woman whose husband's been killed in a motorbike ca- crash and she goes to the place where he's killed and it becomes very much a shrine for her. And that's that's not quite such a tough watch. But again, it's... Not as light and fluffy as you think it should. You think it's going to be. It's going back to that idea of Alan Bennett as that he's a sort of national treasure that writes these little light and fluffy monologues, and he doesn't. Because I mean, there's nobody seen Lady in the Van, <laughs> you know, because all the, all the stuff with the, the person getting killed, presumably by um, the old lady whose name I can't remember at the moment. Yeah, so it's he does write dark stuff. Hmm. It's all there in his psyche, waiting I'm to come out. I'm just looking at the slew of nomina- nominations it got. For the BAFTAs in 1989. Because mm-hmm. it wins Best Actress for Thora Heard in Cream Cracker. Yeah. Under the settee. But the nominations, also Patricia Routledge and Maggie Smith, mm. both nominated. Alan Bennett himself mm. um, for Actor and Drama Series and In His Lloyd, mm-hmm. the producer, and Best Single Drama. Mm. And Video Lighting, Lighting, graphics and tv music we should say about the the music and the yes and the graphics as well yes. yeah because the um the title sequence for the new version is just typing mm. whereas the, the the 1998 and the 1998 it's it's sort of weird line drawing of alan bennett sort of turning around turning around talking yeah um and then turning his back on you which is rude yeah but, <laughs> but you said you preferred the season one ones, yes. well, the, the the eighties one to the nineties one. The music, yeah, they've done a few, a few sort of twiddly bits yeah. to the nineteen ninety eight, and I'm not sure I like it very much. It's it's odd the way they tweak things, but of course that's a different producer because Innis Lloyd produces the first series, yeah. but it's Mark Chavez yeah. for the second. But yeah, all in all, I think it's a it's a great little little show isn't yeah, it yeah they're all still available on iPlayer they'll be there for for the best part of a year so I would advise you to watch them as I said some are easier going than others I mean certainly watch a chip in the sugar because it's 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 superbly done it's the language is excellent and it's filmed in Dot Cotton's bedroom 
<laughs> apparently. Watch them all and, and form your own opinion of yeah. what you think. And the original is available on DVD if yes. you wish to watch it. Yeah, well, we, you've probably become an expert on this I in the I last few have. weeks, haven't you? I've probably seen too much Alan Bennett now. I yeah. need to go and watch something else instead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you. And, uh, we'll see you again. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That was episode 50B of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Martin Holmes, Warren Cummings, Toppy Smelly, Paul Chandler and Dealey Cat. On the musical side you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The scripts for Talking Heads were by Alan Bennett. And the producers were Innes Lloyd and Mark Sheavis. And Nicholas Heitner and Kevin Loder. Bedabung, 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 bedabung. <laughs> Did you arrange it so that episode six would be on episode fifty of uh, of RPS? Not RPS. We're not doing RPS. <laughs> <laughs> Nick will be pleased. Should we try that again? Yeah. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Martin Holmes, one brother. It's catching, but. What is the final article? Oh, I forgot to say, didn't I? You did. So it's Andrew and Lisa looking at... Alan Bennett's Talking Heads. (laughs) Something exploded then. (laughs) Do that again. Ask me again. Okay.